0: Good to go, Polly. Well, good afternoon, everyone, um, and a very warm welcome to this fourth seminar um, of the term um, at the South Asia, um, uh, connected with the South Asia seminar uh, here in Oxford. Um, today, it's our very great pleasure to welcome um, Dr Nosheen Ali. Uh, Dr Ali is a sociologist who's currently serving as faculty, global faculty in residence at NYU. Uh, she researches state making, ecology and Muslim cultural politics in South Asia with a particular focus on Pakistan and Kashmir. Um, And she's going to talk to us today um, about her recent work, um, which has a very, very um, uh, interesting and and, uh, intriguing title, Delusional States, Love, Citizenship and Resistance in Gilgit, um, Baltistan. Um, For those of you who are joining us from outside Oxford, there will be um, uh, some time at the end of um, Dr. Ali's presentation for questions, which you can send in via the chat box. If you think you might want to ask a question, don't wait until the end of, of the presentation to send it in because sometimes there is a little bit of a delay. Uh, So you're you're very welcome to send in questions throughout the talk and uh, Dr. Ali will do her best to answer them uh, at the end of the talk before we then move to our uh, particular focused Oxford discussion. So, Dr. Ali, over to you and much looking forward to your presentation.
1: Thank you, Polly, um, and thank you to the South Asia Studies Group at Oxford for this kind invitation. It's a hard thing to give a book talk. Uh, This is probably the sixth or seventh time that I am speaking about the book and every time it's a cherished opportunity. So I really appreciate um, the audience. Uh, The book is titled Delusional States. I'm not sure if you can see. Feeling rule and development in Pakistan's northern frontier. And it looks at uh, the part of Pakistani-administered Kashmir called Gilgit-Baltistan, which is internationally considered as part of disputed Kashmir. As many of you know, India and Pakistan have fought several wars um, over the territory of Kashmir. And what has often happened is that the identities, the cultural politics, and the social struggles of people on the ground have been marginalized in the overall framing Uh, of the dispute as a bipartisan, two-party dispute. Um, So the book is part of a larger Kashmir studies, Kashmir scholarship, um, growing body of research, growing body of, I would say, scholarly activist work, which is trying to break the intellectual line of control. There was a time where there was very little conversation across the line of control uh, between scholars who work on both sides. So I hope that the book makes a contribution to not just Gilgit-Baltistan, which is an understudied um, place in the larger uh, dispute of Kashmir, but also in our critical understanding of nationalism, state formation, development and resistance um, in South Asia broadly. One caveat before I go into the details of the talk is that often in South Asia settings, because this is a South Asia seminar, I'm going to use the opportunity to say that Kashmir has often been at the margins of conversations in South Asia studies. It's seen as this IR political science topic. For the longest time, it was seen like that. Or maybe in border studies. I have distinct memories of going to South Asia conferences where a group of us were referred to as the Kashmir folk as if. If we look at um, or if we work on Kashmir, it's necessarily just about the Kashmir conflict and there's a resistance intellectual and political to. To discussing Kashmir, even in academic settings, because it's a it's an emotionally fraught. Topic, And my book addresses that what is often known as the heart of hostility or the emotional way in which particularly Indians and Pakistanis get about Kashmir. And it looks at the emotions at stake on the ground um, within people who have been most uh, marginalized and repressed as a result of this so-called uh, national security issue in India and Pakistan. So the point I want to make is that the book is not just about Gilgit-Baltistan or Kashmir studies. Um, Our work as scholars uh, of and on Kashmir is about challenging South Asian studies. It's about challenging nationalism through the lens of occupation. It's about seeing the Pakistani state and Indian state Uh, for what they reveal in parts of Kashmir. And now what we see uh, in India and Pakistan is actually a dynamic that a lot of us have been seeing in Kashmir for a very long time. So uh, this is just to say that the centrality of the region is not just because it's a region. It should not just be regionalized, but because of the militarization of citizenship that is unveiled there has become a model, sadly, for what the states are doing uh, in India and Pakistan. So with that, I'll start the slides. I hope that's visible. Polly, can you see the slides fine? I'm not sure if you're on mute, but I will hope I hope people can see. Um, I'll begin with the words from a Gilgiti poet, um, and I'll read it in Urdu first. Zubaan ko maine bhi ab lagam chhod diya. Amire wakt tera ehtiram chhod diya. Gila baja hai ke aye eh, doston nahi hai baja. Nif sadi se hume kyun gulam chhod diya? Abhi tak hain dogroon ke yaha. Abhi tak hain kawaniin dogroon ke yaha apna nizam I've let my tongue loose from now on. Ruler of the time, I've stopped respecting you from now on. Am I right in complaining or no, my friends? Half a century and we are still in chains. The laws of Dogra's still prevail here. They have long gone, but their system remains. I start with the poetic medium because Attending poetry festivals in Gilgit-Baltistan soon showed to me the kind of creative resistances that people in a heavily militarized and surveilled context resort to to express their feelings about the state. So a central argument of my book is attending to the oral poetic as a lens on citizenship and as a lens on the felt experience Of the state. Often, when we look at studies of power and rule, we fail to ask how is rule felt? How is rule embodied? Um, What are the feeling thoughts uh, through which people understand citizenship? And that was the question that I was uh, driven to explore uh, while I was doing ethnographic fieldwork. So, my fieldwork. Um, Can't I move the slides? Okay, was uh, in the region called Gilgit Baltistan. It is bordered by Afghanistan, China, uh, the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. And specifically, uh, I worked in the city of Gilgit and the village of Shimshal. So, Gilgit and Shimshal are both marked. This map is quite interesting because I've kind of invisibilized India and Pakistan from it after the invisibilization um, that the region has experienced in security paradigms in nationalisms in both states. Um, so this is the region. It's the only Shia majority part of Sunni dominated Pakistan. It is an ecologically sensitive climactic zone uh, with several rare um, wildlife species. It's considered as a global biodiversity hotspot. It's home to many glaciers um, and and mountain peaks. We'll get to that in a bit. It's also a key site of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is a multi-billion dollar um, infrastructure development and political project that is engulfing all of Pakistan. And it um, is centrally located in Gilgit-Baltistan. So Gilgit-Baltistan is the site of. You know, people here are reduced to not just marginality and disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement due to being part of the Kashmir issue, but also they are seen as religious subjects, border subjects, as well as development subjects. And the question that the book asks is, How is rule accomplished in in such a space? I'll begin with zooming out a little bit and talk about uh, the Kashmir, the framing of Kashmir within India and Pakistan, what I call effective histories of Kashmir. So Kashmir is the essence and rationale for so much politics and for ideologies in India and Pakistan. We all know that. But what is very interesting is is the bodily um, is the bodily vocabulary and occupying mindset in in nationalisms in both countries. I think ever since I was three years old, I was told that um, Kashmir is the sharak or jugular vein, or you know, Kashmir is in our bloods. So and in India, the reference to Kashmir is often with the word "atut ang," which is the inseparable part, limb, or organ of the body. And there are contrasting positions, obviously, the Indian states and Pakistani state, um, in relation to Kashmir. In relation to even different parts of Kashmir, I won't have time to go into that right now. Um, but what is common? I want to talk about what is common. Is is this flesh and body proprietariness in the way Kashmir is talked about as limb, organ and vein. And I connected to the way in which feminists in Pakistan talk about how they are reduced to flesh and body. So I've started thinking more and more about the masculinist discourse that underlines fascist ideologies of occupation which are at the core of South Asian nationalisms. Uh, even the language of key players um, and great game, which is often used to describe Gilgit-Baltistan, is a very masculinist language. So I just wanted to draw attention to how, yes, you know, there is a communalist paradigm, or you know, there is a nationalist paradigm, there is a security paradigm, but the commonality from a feminist perspective. Is this masculinist rhetoric of occupation and Atutang and Sharak? Because in the name of the Kashmir Court, in the name of the Kashmir Cause, what is happening is that both countries are annihilating Kashmiri will and self annihilating too with regional proxy wars in Afghanistan and Balochistan. So now I'll I'll shift to Gilgit-Baltistan. So within the larger very toxic nationalistic paradigms of India and Pakistan. Gilgit, Pakistan is a curious uh, is a curious space because within the Pakistani national imagination. Um, the area was formerly known as the northern areas, the federally administered northern areas, and it's literally reduced to its mountains and glaciers. So it's an idyllic natural landscape. Uh, you know, talked about through the Karakoram highway, through its peaks, through its gemstones in our geography books growing up in Karachi and Lahore. It almost melded into the physical landscape of Pakistan. And I argue in my book is that this contributes to unseeing the people of the place because the place is really reduced to an abstract space that is unpeopled. and becomes seen only through an urban bourgeois tourist imaginary, but also through a very strange geological, geographical um, imagination. And what I argue, following Vinnie, um, uh, I forget the author's name, Vinny Chikol, on uh, the way he has theorized the geobody of the nation, I argue that gilgit pakistan is produced as the eco-body of the nation, in a way reducing it to ecological essence and epitome. Even the name Northern Areas, which during my fieldwork, the name was changed uh, somewhere in the middle of it, is a very cryptic geographical label. So um, somewhere in the middle of the last decade with heightened tourism from rest of Pakistan and the name change, people realize what this place is. But as I go to describe in the book, The illegibility of the region was its estranged and invisibilized in remarkably um, colonial ways, both through name, through textbooks, through mapping, and through the census. And what I argue, again, I won't be able to go into too much detail, but just to hint at uh, what the first chapter is about, is how the region itself is produced as an affect through narratives of beauty. The last chapter looks at narratives of terror. Again, not part of this particular talk. But I wanted to talk about reducing the region to an affect. It's reducing a region to certain feelings of awe and wonder and desire, territorial desire, that shape how one sees, senses, and receives a region. So that's that's about how the region is produced within the Pakistani nationalist imaginary. What is interesting is that within the region, it's ruled like an internal security zone, uh, which is quite eclipsed in in the tourist kind of portrayal of the region. Excuse me. One word that was often used in my fieldwork and was also uh, the sub line uh, in a local newspaper in Gilgit is Sarzamine Bayain," which means my land without the Constitution. So Gilgit, Pakistan is permanently in between. It does not have a defined constitutional status within Pakistan. And for the longest time, it was illegible within the Pakistani administrative uh, paraphernalia as well. They did not know how to deal with this region. Uh, its judicial system, its political representative system, is is neither here nor there. Uh, it's ruled for the most part directly from Islamabad and is mostly militarily controlled. So, "serzamine Bay was the rallying cry of of people in the region, and we see now with the Bhim Army in India, with. Uh, uh, the PTM movement in Pakistan, how the very basic fundamental uh, document and relationship between state and citizen is at stake. So a lot of India and Pakistan feels like it's without the constitution. And that's what I meant earlier about many of the dynamics that I saw in Gilgit-Baltistan during my fieldwork are now resonating across across the South Asian landscape. Um, so what is ironic, perhaps, is that although gilgit baltistan has had this in limbo status, um, what I was struck by is how people expressed their connection to Pakistan in terms of mohabbat, love, dhoka, means betrayal, duri distance, and bevify, which is again disloyalty and betrayal. One refrain, for example, which was often used um, in in protest and in my interviews is Pakistan, ne saath ke saath Pakistan has played with slash manipulated our emotions. So emotions is not just sort of an intellectual sort of theoretical, you know, apparatus that I'm using to to understand Gilgit-Baltistan. It was actually in my fieldwork, in my notes, um, Essas, which is emotions and feelings, were constantly talked about the feeling of alienation, the feeling of silencing um, was talked about, not just in legalistic terms that we don't have rights and, you know, uh, certain acts are unconstitutional, but citizenship as 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 intimate betrayal of the solidarity that Gilgit Baltistanis showed ostensibly showed to the region in 1947 when they opted for uh, a Muslim Pakistan, as opposed to Hindu dominated Kashmir or India. Gilgit baltistan has a lot of uh, soldiers uh, from the region as well. And so uh, this is also, you know, this dynamic would also be used to tell me, for example, we are the most loyal citizens. We have sacrificed our lives for. Pakistan, and yet look at what Pakistan does. Pakistan just manipulates us. I want to take this manipulation seriously. And what I argue is that Pakistan, seen from Gilgit-Baltistani citizen subjects, emerges as a state of manipulated love. So love becomes, and this I'm talking about, love as as political subjectivity. Um, And love as attachment to a social and ecological space. Again, I won't have time to um, go into this, but I want to hint at how important it is and how interesting it has been for me to understand the genealogy of love as a political emotion in South Asia. So I trace it to popular um, culture in South Asia, stories of Hiranja, Sony Maiwal have always been metaphors for more than human um, couple love. It's been about patriarchal uh, authority. It's been about priestly authority. It's been about challenging power. And I connect that to what is happening in GB. And the resistances that I look in the book are also kind of subterraneously <laughs> political. So I look at resistances that are often not paid attention to, especially poetic activism, educational social movements, and ecological um, resistance. And I'll I'll talk about two of them in this talk. But first, so I've been talking about the second part of the title in the book, Feeling Rule, um, and why it's important um, to think about how rule is felt. What is the emotional logic of oppression uh and of power and this is significant even on the other side of Kashmir um Saiba Varma has a piece in which she quotes the Kashmiri as saying uh they brackets Indians do not feel or represent our sentiments I have a message here okay Okay, you can see my slides. I just saw that message. Thank you. So delusional states. Um, I am essentially talking about Pakistan and the US as delusional states, but we can look at this theoretical framing more broadly in South Asia and beyond as well. When it comes to thinking about the state from the perspective of its border, militarized regions and the most militarized terrain on the planet, really, uh, the word in Urdu is riyasat, And it would be amazing. The riyasat would be described as foolish, as stupid, as debased, as self-destructive, as exceptionally arrogant, as paranoid, as hyper-intelligent-sized. For example, I would be often told, Yahan har dusra banda hai. every other person is a spy. I mean, I would think this is an exaggeration. Come on, can't be. It can't be like that. And very soon, I realized the the extent of the overdeveloped uh, intelligence state in Pakistan, especially in GB. This is between 2005 and 2007, particularly. So right now, it's, it's far worse all over Pakistan and India as well. Um, and what is really interesting uh, in terms of understanding this regime of intimidation and violence that is imposed on border regions is that it also reaches the realm of the absurd uh, in many ways. So, for example, and I say this in the book, that a group of special children take part in the Special Children Olympics in India. And the nonprofit organization that sent them was visited by one of the intelligence agencies several times saying, why did you send these special children to India? What was your purpose? Who do you work for? And we have countless stories of pigeons being arrested and monkeys being arrested and, you know, um, crazy dynamics of of intelligence sized approach uh, to politics. Uh, another example is. Uh, you know, a non-profit organization was uh, doing workshops on early childhood education and talking about multiple intelligences of a child, how to develop multiple intelligences in a child. And there was a spy sitting in the audience saying, "Why are you talking about the intelligence?" You know, it's like, "No, we're talking about multiple intelligences." And he's like, "But you're talking about the intelligence." So it's irrational beyond imagination, and those who suffer on the ground obviously deal with it with humor, but deal with it with a lot of pain and anguish. And my theoretical intervention here is that delusion, uh, characterized particularly by highly militarized societies, is a key feature of the modern state, particularly in the context of the so-called war on terror. Um, And here I'm drawing upon the work of There's a lot of theory of state making and it takes fantasy seriously, you know, the kind of fantastic imaginations of of state projects and of the state itself as a fantasy. But I think post the war on terror and the regimes of terror and what it enabled in South Asia and also the on the ground reflections about the state being arrogant and paranoid and the examples that I was being quoted made me think differently about state making in South Asia. So Anne McClintock is is an amazing feminist theorist and her work on Paranoid Empire is looks at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo as exceptional prisons uh, where U.S. empire uh, engages in fantasies of global omnipotence combined with nightmares of impending attack. And when I read that, I immediately thought about Pakistan. You know, there's a way in which she talks about grandeur, omnipotence and belief that everybody is suspect and the state is constantly threatened by internal and external enemies. She's talking about the U.S. Empire and extraordinary prisons. And I argue and she calls them shadowlands of empire. And I argue that Pakistan has been a shadowland of empire since the Cold War. Um, And. This is where I use Philip McMichael's incorporated comparison framework to look at state making transnationally and not ghettoize Pakistan in the Middle East and South Asia, because theoretically. The U.S. state and the Pakistani state have interlinked dynamics of military and intelligence state power. Um, so this logic that we have to reduce Pakistan to South Asia and increasingly the Middle East and then the comparative framework can only be in the so-called third world is something I'm also I'm also challenging here by looking at a transnational analysis of empire and state as both mutually delusional. Just to give you an example of the kind of surveillance and suspicion uh, that gilgit Pakistanis expressed to me and here. I, I wish to thank the, the journalists, the political workers, the activists, um, the politicians, the students, the faculty members who sometimes with risk to themselves uh, really aided me in research over a period of nine months, over, over several years in, in a context that has only become worse uh, for researchers. And I can talk about about that reality and what that means for scholars today, later in Q&A, if it comes up. So a journalist, uh, Mehboob Shah, adds, It is like thought control. So many of us live in fear and are afraid to freely discuss anything in public. What if there's a spy around? Last week, when I sent a report about the region to a newspaper in down country under a pseudonym, I first got a threatening warning on phone, then through an agent who came to my house. They do this to remind us that they know where we live, where our families are. This ghatia, excuse me, debased pressure is brutal. We have to ask, who benefits from this system? By denying us our rights and holding us in fear and suspicion, it is the military establishment that benefits because they want to maintain their unchecked privileges. So, the production of Gilgit Baltistan as an untrustworthy, treacherous space versus the love and longing uh, and alienation and betrayed expectations that Gilgit Baltistani subjects uh, express to me is the kind of overlapping, overflowing emotional terrain, part of that emotional terrain that I chart um, in the book. Um, I'm going to quickly go over this because I do want to cover the poetic and ecological resistance. But two of the chapters in the book look at the routinization of uh, intersect resentment and sectarianization in Gilgit-Baltistan. And here again, I connect empire, nation and region and offer a transnational analysis of Shia marginalization, as well as an educational social movement that at least try to challenge the sectarian project of of national Islam. And the argument that I make here regarding delusional states is that it's not that subjects in Gilgit-Baltistan are suspected, it's also, and this is a very significant point, is that state making in the region produces suspicious subjects along sectarian lines or in other parts, maybe along ethnic lines through divide and conquer colonial practices that disrupt regional political solidarity. And this would often be referred to as calculated disorder short of a conflict. Um, so the idea is that by sectarianizing space, the people in Gilgit-Baltistan are rendered, are rendered irrational subjects or too sectarian, brimming with sectarian emotion. And again, this kind of. Uh, religious sensibilities of people is used to reinforce apparently a neutral law and order state but we all know that the military state is sponsoring the sectarian elements as well so that's the kind of um, dynamic that i chart in in two of the chapters uh, in the book one Aspect of resistance, and I'll, I'll just end with that. I won't have time to talk about the poetic aspect too much. Um, is is biodiversity conservation. So as I mentioned earlier, Gilgit-Baltistan is home to several rare wildlife species and since the 1970s has been an object of uh, affect and desire, not just by national Pakistani subjects for their romantic ideas of idyllic landscapes and you know, tourist spots, but also by international conservation organizations uh, with respect to the biodiversity uh, of the area and the reduction of that biodiversity and local ownership and indigenous life worlds to protected areas in the form of national parks, wildlife sanctuaries, game reserves, and hunting areas. I would often be told, for example, that Gilgit-Baltistan is a living museum for wildlife, and this juxtaposition of how present concern for wildlife is, as opposed to people, was not left uncommented in in my research. I want to also highlight that um, recently, over the last two months, two new parks have been notified and announced and imposed without consultation from people, and it again reduces uh, the region to this empty landscape, which is already there in national. It's already a national product and a national object. And now it's also an international object because of its um, its wildlife. So I, I problematize capitalist notions of conservation and argue that Western notions of conservation that have been implemented in GB are rooted in white capitalist fantasies and imposed notions of empty landscapes. And I contrast the emotion of saving nature, of compassion, that is seen as the apex of effective agency, as opposed to local understandings of Kudrat or inbuilt mechanisms of of conservation in the region through indigenous practices. Again, sorry, I'm rushing. I won't have time to talk about this, Um, but I'll talk uh, I'll just mention that the Shimshal Nature Trust, which I present a case study of, offers an epistemic challenge to the theory and practice of global biodiversity conservation by challenging its fundamental tenet that that we don't believe in national parks, we believe in ecological sovereignty. We will own the land and you participate. Why should there be community participation when you are the guests? You should learn from us. So there is a reversal of dynamic here. Um, There's a reversal of dynamic in many ways in which people assert their dignity, assert their right to livelihood and assert their right to right to representation and and democratic um, and a democratic idea of love, if you like. So I'm mindful of the time and I will end there uh, and we can we can we can highlight other aspects um, when we have question and answers. Thank you.
0: Okay, Noshin, thank you very much indeed for um, a most interesting and and, um, intriguing presentation. I have questions that came to me almost by the minute, as 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 I listened. Um, now we've had some uh, questions in from um, uh, from uh, listeners outside Oxford. Um, now, can you are you able to see them in your chat?
1: Yes, I'm just. Uh, uh, in your chat box. Um, if if you have so read them, you can maybe tell me because uh, these, oh, these are oh, long oh. questions. <laughs> Thank Let me you. Read them. The questions, by the way, I will have a record later. I'm sorry, I'm just. Catching up. Uh, so the first question is, I wanted to get back to the argument
0: you made about changing the frames through which we view Gil- Gilgit-Baltistan. The manner in which you shift from the regular nationalism frames is insightful. I, w- I was wondering if it would not, would not be even more productive to place mountain areas like Gilgit-Baltistan outside the frame of South Asia entirely and inside the historical frames of Asian highlands slash Zomia. Yeah. Um, that's a
1: very, Yeah. Should I go ahead and answer it or? Yes, absolutely. Um. Thank you, Aniket. Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I actually in the introduction of the book, I and as well as in the first chapter, I talk about how some people, because of their marginality within Pakistan would and their isolation uh, from the mainstream um, would sometimes counter their illegibility by telling me, and this is an odd case, this is not necessarily the norm, as Central Asian. So so, so I think, I think the fact that it's at the meeting point of Central Asia and South Asia in, in the kind of dominant notions of Central Asia and South Asia is interesting. But I think all these categories are political categories that are actually linked to the Cold War, that are actually linked to intellectual production in academia. So I do see value in the mountain-centered discourse, which is across Nepal, across India, across Pakistan, particularly from an ecological standpoint, particularly because of the way in which they have been objects of of dams, they've been objects of infrastructure projects, and they have resulted in ecological catastrophes in in all of these places, including Gilgit-Baltistan. But I'm not sure about Zomia because, uh, yeah, I think people are not trying to run away from from national participation. They're actually trying to find an egalitarian space within it. In my opinion. Okay. right. Thank you. Um,
0: So another question. Uh, So this is a this will put you on your metal. Um, There may be three issues with this paradigm. Firstly, it misses out on corroboration or contrast from the other side of the line of control. Second, um, GB is neither a homogenous region as you present, nor was its status within the Dogra run princely state of JNK so clear cut.
1: Polly, may I just interrupt? I just had a oh, chance to read the whole you, you read it.
0: Fantastic, yes. excellent. I've published uh, that, so we should be able to see it.
1: This is a very short talk. It's a 300-page book. I will not be able to address uh, her history, and uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I, I am not trying to say anything about the other side of LS, LOC in this talk. So we can move on to the next question. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. I mean, there are, I completely take, you know, this is a very contentious topic and people will be wanting or are wanting
1: <laughs> fine. To
0: ask I've, I've, related yeah. things which are not actually what you have aimed to, uh, to chat about. Um, um, so, yeah. Um, uh, I think uh, that there are one or, two, that one or two other sort of observations um, uh, that um, uh, kind of more observations, you know, or questions that are not really quite pertinent to what you uh, are trying to do as I see it. Um, uh, w- whilst we just wait to see if anyone else wants to come in, I wonder if you would put up with a question from me, um, which is. Um, you know, I, I looked. You know, I I, I was absolutely fascinated by the, the early on in your talk, the way in which you explored uh, themes of the body. You know, of the of veins, of bodies, of limbs, in the way in which um, uh, Kashmir, in particular, is is represented. Um, and of course, you know, and you you draw the connection with the sort of eco body that the sort of urban bourgeois tourist figure imagines and you make the connection between the sort of gendered um, uh, masculine imagery that you see coming from Pakistan and in particular in the act of mapping. Um, And of course, um, in in modern discourses of nationalism, we are, as you know, we we, we all know, we're very used to seeing um, links drawn between uh, the nation, blood, soil, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also um, an older discourse and I wonder whether this is something that you um, have thought about, it. I'm sure, sure you will have done. There is of course an older discourse um, across the subcontinent which is rooted in humoral theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the idea the, the idea that um, that states are like bodies, that different mm-hmm. communities within a Politea like its limbs, yeah. um, that that the health of a polity is established through a, a correct balance between its various limbs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and, and these, these um, understandings of the humoral body mm-hmm. are, of course, have um, very similar, in fact, parallel lives um, within the sort of Indo, uh, within the Indic tradition And um, in the uh, Indo-Muslim tradition, I mean, they, they, you know it's there. For example, in Abu Fazl in Mm Mughal India, Mm
1: -hmm. there Mm -hmm.
0: in uh, Vedic accounts of how society sprang from the body of the primal man, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, and of course, it has a much wider life. Um, in the way in which um, ordinary communities understood their own bodies and thought about their health and their health in particular in relation to their own natural environments because the humoral body has a very intimate relationship, of course, with its natural environment and qualities from one uh, uh, crossover. over. Um, and I wonder whether, um, you know, do you see this older history um, as as laying the ground for a more powerful mm. um, expression of the sorts of masculine and patriarchal yeah. Yeah. constructions that you talk about, you know, or is there perhaps um, at the level of popular culture, w- which is what I would expect, mm. a, a longer term persistence of these relatively ungendered, it seems to me, humoral understandings of the body. Yeah. Mm,
1: uh, yeah. But, but That's a fantastic but, uh, question. Sorry. That's a fantastic question. Thank you so much. I just this my an area
0: I'm interested in. and so I wondered if you that that uh, enters into your uh,
1: If I can be really honest um, the kind of nationalistic fervor and the kind mm. of ways in which claim to Kashmir is made on both sides mm. is so deeply misogynist. Mm. Just that. Mm. And I've been so attuned to the present, frankly, Mm. that I have not had the chance to explore these amazing, Mm. and it has been done in Kashmir studies, the Mm. notions of family, Kashmir as the head in in mapping of India. But I think only recently have I looked at the connected Mm. histories of of nationalistic Mm. uh, occupation. I mean, Mm. I think my interest comes in demilitarizing sovereign uh, mm. sovereignty from yeah. a feminist mm. angle and um, and i think the kind of uh lines that you are drawing are, are very significant and have been done it's just something i've not thought about but i am yeah. thinking more and mm. more about consent mm. uh, Particularly, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the amazing poet anthropologist ather zia draws co- connections between the way Kashmir is currently being even mm. more violently militarized so. and in Indian uh, on the Indian side um, mm. with the with the with the Me Too discourse, with abuse, with notions of mm. of uh, of bodily violence. Mm. It, uh, Kashmiris do mm. for this violence bodily. If let's not mm. erase that the body is not just a metaphor. No,
0: no. Yes. Right. Yeah.
1: So the, I think there are yeah. layers, and it's a very fascinating question about connecting the violence done to the body and the violence of the nation at mm-hmm. down to Kashmiri bodies. Yeah, yeah, sure. What Atharzia calls the killable Kashmiri body. Mm-hmm. So I'm just I'm reminded of a very powerful uh, framing with your with your mm-hmm. question. Thank, Thank you. <laughs>
0: you. I shall look forward to reading your book. Um, Thank you. Now, um, let me just see, have any more questions come in on the chat that we should look at, um, that are pertinent to your talk? Just, I always find it difficult to move this down. Um, New, let me see. Um, uh, Can can you see these? um,
1: Yes. I, I can I can see this. Um, I don't know whether there's
0: any in particular that you want to uh, to, to
1: discuss. Um, so I'm sorry, but I'm mindful of the time because there is a separate conversation. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I these are long answers. I really appreciate the questions, yeah. but I'm yeah. because there are six questions in front of me, I don't want to yes. choose well, some about other
0: that's a, um, a nice reflection of the interest that you're. you're uh, we're glad uh, people have joined. Well, shall we? Shall we thank you very much then, and and thank those who have joined us from outside Oxford. Um, I'm sure um, Nosheen is uh, would be happy to um, or, or does already um, uh, conduct her um, her scholarly exchanges in many in many ways. Um, so Nosheen, we'll log out and then we'll log back into our Oxford discussion. And if not at all, if is, is has been able to join us, she will take the chair. Otherwise, I will be there as well in any case. Okay. See, you, see you in a moment. Thank you very much. Thank,
1: Thank you. you.